Thank you for joining our podcast here at Peninsula Covenant Church. Stay tuned as together we'll study God's Word. Morning, everybody. Can you multitask? Can you like give an offering and listen to me at the same time? If you have to do one or the other, give the offering, okay? Hey, um, uh, real fast, I came in as the children were leading us in worship. My daughter was part of that. And um, I am just so thankful for a worship pastor that doesn't want children singing in church, but leading us in worship. Big difference. Can we give it up for Ian and his team? It was awesome. Incredible. My 10-year-old's like, Dad, I, I get to lead you in worship. I love that. I love that. That's awesome. So next week, Brian told you, Easter Sunday, we go big at Easter because it is the event that our faith rests on. Uh, You probably know this, but other faith systems uh, rest on a teaching of an individual or a prophet or a holy book. Uh, Christianity isn't validated or verified by any of that. Uh, Because when the crucifixion happened, it was game over. Everything Jesus taught was completely unbelieved when Jesus died on the cross and buried. And there wasn't a holy book for 300 years in our faith system. And plenty of people were placing their faith in Christ apart from a holy book. Uh, And Jesus wasn't a prophet. When he died, everyone thought he was done. He was another guy with the Messiah complex. But the reality is, uh, on the third day, the good story is, and this is what we're going to talk about next week, on the third day, nobody expected no body to be in a tomb. Nobody expected there wouldn't be a body. They all came uh, outside the tomb. The ones that did, we'll look at one person in particular, her name's Mary. She came to further embalm the body and prepare him for further burial. No one was outside the tomb on the third day going, 10, 9, Eight. Here he comes. His followers were scattered. The Jesus thing was over on the third day. Our faith rests on an event that validated everything Jesus taught, that verified everything that Jesus taught, the resurrection. And that's why we're celebrating big time next week. Do not come alone. Do not just come to one. Serve at one. We're going to have a huge, we're going to double next week. We need servants here. Uh, but we need to know that that's the primary narrative, but there's a backstory that I want to talk about today of Easter. Do you understand the term backstory? Every primary narrative has a background narrative that supports the primary narrative, a backstory. And today I want to talk about the backstory. The primary narrative, I already told you. The tomb is empty. There's a story to tell. It was there a month ago. It's still empty, everybody. Uh, the tomb is completely empty. But the backstory is super important because primarily, thanks to two individuals that we're going to look at today, generations of followers of Christ have confirmation that he rose from the dead. Thanks to two individuals, next week, a third of the known world will gather like we will to celebrate Jesus as Lord. See, the backstory, if we can clap for that. Amen. Yeah. Awesome. Apart from, th- from these two guys, you know where Jesus would have come out of? I think I have a picture of it. Uh, this place. It's uh, a valley south. I took that a month ago. South of Jerusalem called Gehenna. It didn't look that pretty in Jesus' day. It was a garbage dump in Jesus' day. It was always burning because they would burn their garbage. See, when you were crucified in Jesus' day, 
All your rights were gone. We'll see that even later on in our time together, including your right to a proper burial. And the Romans would crucify an individual and then leave him hanging for days, maybe even weeks at a time as a deterrent to everyone else in the Roman Empire. Don't mess with Rome. And then at some point, Roman guards would come and pry a dead corpse off a cross, throw it in a cart, and wheeled it down to the south to a valley called Gehenna, where garbage would be burning, and they'd throw the corpse in to either rot more or burn, and it'd be game over. If it wasn't for this backstory, that's where Jesus would have ended up. But it's because of two individuals uh, that, uh, that our backstory changes, and we have an actual place to look at that is empty, and we celebrate big time. So open your Bibles to John 3, and let's jump into our backstory, everybody. I want every Bible open. Please, uh, turn it on, open it. I want everyone in the Word this morning. Our backstory begins very early in the life of Jesus. There's a group of people called Pharisees. Turn to someone and say, Pharisee. Yeah. Uh, Pharisees were the religious leaders, and you need to know in Jesus' day in Jerusalem, in Israel, more than Jerusalem, they were the religious leaders of the day. And they were the most holy, outwardly holy individuals in Jesus' day. They kept all the religious rules. If you were to ask a Pharisee, hey, what do you do? You know what he'd say? I do good. I'm a, I'm a holy guy. That's what I do. And these Pharisees, you need to know, hated Jesus. They hated him. They hated him because of how he taught and what he taught. They hated him because he wouldn't keep their rules. They hated him because the people loved Jesus and they were losing their tribe. But there's this tiny little rebel group of Pharisees who knew what the others knew, but for some reason they raised their eyebrows and leaned in. They wondered maybe based on his teaching, maybe based on his miracles, Maybe, just maybe, we're not saying it is, but maybe this could be Messiah. This could be the one. So these little group of Pharisees would talk amongst themselves, hoping that none of the other Pharisees would hear or see the conversation. And then uh, two of them, of their group, was a guy named Nicodemus and a guy named Joseph. So I don't know how it happened. I don't know if they drew straws. I don't know if Nicodemus had to go to the bathroom and they pointed him, but at some point, Nicodemus was the guy that they said, you go talk to Jesus. You go and get our questions answered. Um, and specifically, there's one question we need you to ask. And my friends, it is the question of questions. It is the irreducible minimum. If your whole life, you could only ask God one question that you would ask him to. It's the question I get asked all the time outside this building when people feel like I'm safe enough to engage the conversation. Last time it happened was a week ago at Chavez Meat Market, getting burritos with some I didn't even know. Question is this, how can I know me and God are good? How can I know God's for me? How can I know in this life that my prayers aren't bouncing off the ceiling? How can I know when God looks at me, he doesn't say to me, you disgust me. I'm so disappointed in you. You're not even keeping your own moral standards, let alone mine. How can I know on my deathbed, when I breathe my last breath, my final breath will be a preface into really living 
because I'll be welcomed into the presence of God and not condemned. That, my friends, is the question that these guys were asking. And at this point, Nicodemus draws a straw, and that's where our backstory begins. His first decreased moment is stepping into a conversation with Jesus. And that's where we pick it up. John chapter 3. You all there? John 3? Okay. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Uh, Really fast, there's 6,000 Pharisees in Israel. There's 70 of this Jewish ruling council. They're pretty elite. And then later on, we're not going to get to verse 10, but in 10, Jesus says, you're Israel's teacher. See it in your Bible, verse 10? Jesus, what he's really saying is, you are the teacher of teachers in Israel. You are the top of the heap. So this isn't just one of the 6,000. That would be pretty good. This isn't one of the 70 of the 6,000. This is the one of the 70 of the 6,000. Nicodemus is the man. And he's coming to Jesus with a question. He came to Jesus at night and he said, are you with me? Rabbi, look at the next word. We. In other words, I'm not here representing me. I'm here representing a we. I am a representative of a larger group of people. We're not that large actually, but we are wondering And they've appointed me to ask this safe question, if it's safe enough, we, I'm wondering it myself, actually it is me, but it's more than me, it's a we. We know that you're a teacher who's come from God. For no one can perform the signs you're doing if God were not with them. Completely sincere in that statement. And then the pregnant pause. Because he was about to ask the question he had been wanting to ask Jesus, that they had been wanting to ask Jesus. The question You want to ask Jesus. And just before he's getting ready to ask the question, are you ready? Jesus answers the question before he even gets to ask it. I just want to say, if you ever come across somebody who can answer your question before you even ask it, you need to take that answer seriously. Okay? Verse 3. How can me and God be good? He answers it without even asking. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one... I'd circle that. That's emphatic. You can't walk away neutral with statements like this. This is what got Jesus killed. And if you can walk away neutral, you don't understand the claims Jesus is making. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are, what's the next two words? Born again. Jesus answers the question the Pharisees want to know. I bet if we're honest that you would want to know. It's certainly the question I wanted to know at one point. How can God and me be on good terms? In one sentence, Jesus says, the only way to have assurance that when you go to bed at night, if you don't wake up in the morning, you and God are good. The only way you can know that God hears your prayers, that God is for you and not against you and doesn't want to condemn you. The only way that you can know you and God are right is to be born again. Now, some of you are looking at your watch going, is this 2019? Are are we really on the peninsula and the preacher's talking about being born again? Because like me, maybe some religious stereotypes come up in your mind of that term. I know for me, I thought about this a lot this week and thinking, okay, what does the average peninsulaite think when he hears the term or when she hears the term born again? Usually the stereotype is a highly religious person, highly emotional person, pretty emotional person, lowly educated person, 
someone who grew up in extreme brokenness and needs high walls for their faith. Do this, don't do that. They need all the answers. That's usually what comes to our mind. Everybody, none of which typified Nicodemus. When Jesus said, yes, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. Nicodemus was one of the religiously elite. He was extremely educated, extremely religious, intellectually very elite. We saw he was the teacher of all of Israel, very successful, a very put together first century person. And in essence, Jesus says, you ready? None of that matters with me, Nicodemus. None of it counts with me. You need a new start when it comes to you and God. Nicodemus is still trying to get his mind around it, and he goes literal, and he asks Jesus, now wait a second, how can someone be born again when they're old? Surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Wouldn't you love to see the expression on Nicodemus' face at this point? Or, what, Jesus? I don't get it. What are you talking about? Jesus answers in verse 5, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of the water and born of spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh. We know this, right? Dogs have dogs. Cats have cats. People have people. But spirit, God is spirit. And so if you want a relationship with God, your spiritual life needs to be reborn, reignited, a new start, he's saying. In other words, Nicodemus, with God's spirit, because of God's spirit, you can be cleansed. You can be implanted with new life, a new operating system from the inside out. See, this is important because Nicodemus, in essence, is coming to Jesus with the question of questions with this in his mind. And some of you, and some of me too, at sometimes have this in our mind. Hey, Jesus, I'm here because basically I'm good. I'm a good person. I'm better than most. And my question is, I just need a little God supplement can you supplement my already good life? I'm looking for a little God help. I'm a little off-center. I get it. I swear a little bit. I, I should, you know, give more probably. But can you accent my already good life? And Jesus goes, Nicodemus, you think I left the throne room of heaven to supplement people's lives? No. We read it in verse thir- uh, chapter 3, verse 17. He'll say it in a little bit. I didn't come to condemn the world. I came to rescue you. You don't need a supplement. You ready? You need a transfusion. You're not good in my eyes. And I'm not here to condemn you. You're not being good makes me love you even more. And I've come all the way from heaven to make a way for you to truly be right with me and my father. I didn't come to make you a little better. I came to make you a new person. That's the offer on the table, my friends. If you think you're good enough, and you want a little God help to get better, oh, my friends, I would invite you to belong a little longer in this community and understand that's not good news. There's tons of things out there offering help, but it really depends on you. The good news is you can't be good enough. Jesus came to rescue us, not supplement our already successful lives. So I have a question for you. How, Jesus talks about birth. When it came to your physical birth, uh, how many of you were born into this world? Raise your hand. Come on. <laughs> Testify. Come on, everybody. Come on. Yeah, we're all there, right? When it came to your physical birth, how much of that was your effort? I'm going to pick on my boy, Andre Lyra. Andre, stand up. 
Andre, in the womb, did you say at some point in utero, I'm gonna grow a thumb now? I'm gonna grow an eyeball. Did you, yes or no? It's not a trick question. <laughs> no, I'll answer it for him. I did not in the womb say, I want an Italian nose. Bam, there it is, my Italian nose, right? None of that. We had nothing to do with our birth, and that's the whole point of what Jesus is saying. Look, I know it's been messed up in our culture. I know that word has been used in very wrong ways. But like a lot of what I try to do as a pastor, I want to redeem what's in the Bible as Jesus intended it to be. This was a good thing originally. Uh, all my four daughters uh, were born at the luxury of being born in the Western world. Uh, three here in California, one in Chicago. And I had the privilege of being there for all four births. And while my wife did, uh, obviously, the heavy lifting and all of that, um, uh, she was supplemented every time through a hospital's attempt to make her birth as pain-free as possible. Uh, and so I never went into giving birth thinking my wife might not come out of this circumstance or situation or birth. Uh, that wasn't the case with our fifth daughter, born in the jungles of the Congo. And it wasn't the case in the first century with Nicodemus. See, in the first century, they, birth was an extremely dangerous event for a woman. And there weren't epidurals, and there wasn't hospital beds. There certainly wasn't lobster dinners like we got after one of our births from the hospital. Awesome. Go Chicago, right? Um, many times, Nicodemus could have been one of them. People walked the planet knowing I am alive because my mom gave her life in birth that I could have life. So when Jesus says you must be born again, what's lost in 2,000 years and in a whole different culture is this, Nicodemus, the only way you can have life is through the pain of another. As a matter of fact, the only way you can have life, Nicodemus, is because I'm going to die to rebirth you spiritually. So that conversation goes on and at some point it ends and Nicodemus walks away. That's his first decrease moment. And Jesus' life continues on from John 3 and he just grows in popularity. And at some point this elite group of Pharisees, 6,000 people say, he's gotta die. And so there's the Pharisee police. Really, they had their own police force. Jesus is in Jerusalem, and they send out the police to go get Jesus and arrest him. And that's where we pick up his second decrease moment. John chapter 7. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. 45. The Pharisee police come back, and here's what happens. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked him, why didn't you bring him in? Okay, they go to arrest him. Verse 46, no one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards reply. They're like, we'd like to arrest him, but we are so mesmerized with this amazing teaching, there's no way we could arrest him. Verse 47, you mean he's deceived you also? The Pharisees retorted. And then they asked the question that had to make Nicodemus really nervous. Have any, emphasis on any, of the rulers and Pharisees believed in him? To which Nicodemus is kind of looking around, swallowing hard, sweating, because he started to believe in him. And then his second decreased moment, with a lump in his throat, he raises his hand, says, uh, I have a question. Verse 50, 
Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier, who was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's been doing? It's all the allegiance he can muster up at that point because it's all the faith he has. But he says, in a way of advocacy, takes a stand and says, wait a second, we're not those people. Should we not at least hear him for ourselves? Because I have, behind that is implied. And I'm telling you, there's something different about this guy. And then what do they do? They turn racial on him. And they do what we see way too often in our own culture when you can't be civil in a discourse, you go low and turn racial. Are you from Galilee too? Remember when Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The Galileans were the low rung in Israel's ladder. They were the unlearned people. They were the day laborers, if you will. They weren't like the elite Pharisees. What, Nicodemus? Are you a Galilean too? And Nicodemus backs down and time goes on. And the story continues. And Jesus' popularity continues. And he raises someone from the dead. And my friends, John 11, John 12 is the tipping point for this religious elite. And they say, over, he's got to die. And then what we'll celebrate all week long, especially next Friday, come next Friday at seven, six illegal trials in the night. Jesus just thrown into a prison. Jesus punched in the face. Jesus backhanded and slapped. His beard pulled out. He spit on. He's shamed. He's stripped. A crown of thorns is laid on him. His back is beaten to a pulp with glass and, and lead on a whip where it just digs into his flesh. It digs out the flesh. And you can't even recognize him anymore. And in the background of all this, if not in person, but knowing it's happening, is Nicodemus and Joseph. And in the morning, this uh, beaten, bloodied pulp of a man is brought before the people along with Barabbas. And Pilate says, who do you want? And like what still happens in our culture today, the people choose against Jesus. And the crossbar is put on his shoulders and he's walked out of the city to die. And there's Nicodemus from a distance watching this. And he hears the nails go into his arm. And he hears the cry of agony. He hears Jesus say, forgive them. If you ever doubted if God loved you? The very men who crucified Jesus, he's pleading for their forgiveness. And then he's lifted up on the cross. And I just wonder, I'm speculating here, if at that point in Nicodemus's mind watching this, he doesn't remember that first conversation with Jesus. And what Jesus said in verse 14, look on the screen. In that conversation, Jesus said to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you know as well as I do the book of Numbers and the event uh, in Numbers 21, when disease spread through the whole camp of the Israelis, and Moses pled for the Israelis, and I said, put a snake on a pole, and everyone who looks at this uh, snake is healed. Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up, that everyone, say everyone, everyone who believes, not everyone who behaves, 
but everyone who believes may have eternal life. Friends, Jesus' message and what's really good news to Nicodemus and to each one of us, the message we're going to herald next week and every week around the world is this. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people do. And if you can believe that forgiveness is found through Jesus Christ, the question of questions can be answered forever. So while the rest of Jesus' followers fled, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea realized that Jesus was, in fact, sent from God to take on himself the sins of the world, that you enter the kingdom of God not through good behavior. This would blow every paradigm they had as Pharisees. But you enter the kingdom of God through being born anew through right belief and forgiveness through Christ. And his third and final decrease moment happens when everyone flees and Nicodemus and Joseph say, we can't let his body end in a garbage dump. And they go public in their faith. Look what it says in John 19. Later, verse 38, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly up to that point because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, look at this, and about 75 pounds worth. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. In other words, they mummified him in 75 pounds worth of linen and aloe and myrrh, which would only uh, get, um, would dry up and become crusty around the body. This was in accordance with Jewish burial custom. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb, which no one had ever been laid. One of the other gospel writers says it was Joseph's tomb. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, since there was a tomb nearby, and they laid Jesus there. And Matthew and Mark, two other biographers, record that Nicodemus and Joseph rolled the stone into place, sealed the tomb, and left with all their questions and all their assurances. One question was certain, or one thing was certain to remain. Jesus, who came from God, was crucified, was dead. He's in that tomb. And they walked away wondering, What next? But it was their decrease, it was their faith that because of them, Jesus didn't lay hanging on a cross and be taken down by Roman guards and thrown into a valley south of the city called Gehenna, which was the garbage dump which would be constantly burning and he would either be incinerated or because of them, Jesus didn't rise on the third day from that valley, which would have been remarkable, but would have been explainable because there was no 75 pounds of wrapping. There was no place that was empty. There was no place that had a Roman guard around it. And they would have just said, I didn't die in the first place. And on the third day in that very tomb, nobody expected no body for it to be empty. And within a few days, 
throughout Jerusalem, his followers are canvassing the city, not saying he taught great things, not saying we believe the Torah, but saying he's alive. Now, as we wrap this up, I have two questions for two groups of people. One question for each group. Here's the first. If you identify as a follower of Jesus Christ, I am sure that Nicodemus and Joseph, living out their life, didn't think 2,000 years later in the West, there'd be a congregation hearing about their life story. They were just following the truth as it was revealed to them, decreasing each time. Friends, we've been in this series called 40 Days of Decrease. You've heard Brian say, our goal for you and for me as followers of Jesus is that we would follow Jesus passionately, passionately. We've just watched the backstory of someone come from no faith to little faith to public allegiance with Jesus, not knowing that because of his following passionately today, And next week, especially a third of the known world will worship this risen Savior because we can point to the evidence of his obedience. When it comes to following Jesus, what distance, if you identify as a follower, what distance are you okay with as far as between you and Christ and following? How passionate are you willing to be in your obedience? I'm not talking about legalism here. I'm not talking about keeping rules. We just saw it's not about good behavior. I'm just inviting you and I'm inviting me not to 40 days of decrease, not to three levels of decrease like we saw with Nicodemus, but every day a decrease. Every day of waking up and saying, Jesus, the only way for me to live is to let you live in me. It was the first verse we talked about in this series. He must increase. I must what? Decrease. Aren't you grateful that Nicodemus continued his journey of decrease? If you don't identify as a follower of Christ throughout this whole message, you've heard this inner voice. It's not my voice. It's the spirit of God. And inside you've been saying, I'd give anything to know me and God are good. If that's what born again means, I want that new start. I'm not asking you to believe a stereotype. I'm inviting you to respond to the nudge of the spirit of God and to say to Jesus, yes, today's the day. I'm not depending on my good behavior. I'm not asking you to supplement my life. I want you to step into my life to forgive me so I can start anew. If that's what being born again is and no one can enter the kingdom without being born again, I'm in. And I'm gonna close this in prayer and everyone look at me for a second. This prayer doesn't make you a Christian. My words don't make you a Christian. The spirit of God makes you a Christian. And so we're not gonna, I'm not gonna go on the keyboards right now and start playing music and getting all freaky on you. I'm not gonna try and coerce you uh, because I could try to convince you into this, but then I'd have to try to keep you into this if this is about me. If the spirit of God is drawing you, let's let the spirit of God complete the work, amen? So I'm gonna pray and you can pray with me in a moment. I'll shepherd us in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its truth. Thank you for the obedience, wow, of Nicodemus and Joseph. And thank you, Lord, for your love and forgiveness that reaches out to each one of us. Here's the prayer. Lord, for those of us who aren't sure where we stand with you, for those of us who want new life, and then for those of us who prayed this before and are just saying, I do it all over again, we say, Lord Jesus, I need you. 
I thank you that what you did on the cross, what we're about to celebrate was for me. You had my name in your heart. You had my life in the scope of your vision. You love me that much. I need to be forgiven. I need to be born anew by your spirit. So do it, I'm giving you myself. All that I know of myself, I'm giving to all that I know of you. Step into my life, not as a supplement. Make me brand new. Love you. I thank you. From today forward, my life is yours. Amen. Hey, if you prayed that prayer with me, uh, Brian will talk about what to do with that. But I I just want to say in closing, um, when we had our four babies, uh, we didn't leave the hospital after the birth going, wow, I'm glad that's done. And just got on with our life as it was before these babies. Those girls were nurtured and fed and loved to where they're all uh, healthy adults. If you prayed with me, you're a spiritual baby. You've gotten new life. We exist to nurture, to feed, to grow you as a church, a community. That's not on me, it's on this community. So please hear what Brian's gonna say and get into that nurturing process. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our message podcast here at Peninsula Covenant Church. We would love the opportunity to connect with you more. We are located in Redwood City, California, and you can find us online at wearepcc.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by simply searching for We Are PCC.